Well, we've been studying the book of 2 Corinthians over the last few Sunday mornings, and we're going to continue to do that tonight. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, you have to know up front tonight that there is a serious change in tone and aim at the turn of chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians. So throughout chapters 1 through 9, the Corinthians' recent repentance that Paul refers to and writes about, their restoration with Paul, the apostle, it's all celebrated. It was all pretty darn positive for the first nine chapters, only occasional warnings. But then chapters 10 to 13 carry a steady tone of rebuke and warning. It's as if the 90-10 principle of 90% encouragement, 10% warning gets flipped upside down for the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. And this has caused, you know, most scholars to scratch their heads quite a bit. And there are a variety of explanations. One explanation is that these are two different letters that somehow got smushed together at some point, and we're not sure how. Uh, I don't think that's a good explanation. I think what is by far most likely, though we don't have explicit proof, what's most likely is that Paul wrote chapters 1 through 9 of 2 Corinthians and had to set it aside for some time, maybe a week or, or two. No doubt you've, if you've ever written a handwritten letter, if it's a lengthy one, you may have set it aside and come back to it a couple days later, a few days later. Oh my goodness, it's been a week. i got to finish it and send it off. Maybe that kind of thing happened in... in you probably have written letters a lot smaller than Paul's here in 2 Corinthians. It's quite long. So likely what happened is he set it aside for some time. And in that time, another report came to Paul about the Corinthian church. And it was a discouraging one. It was an alarming one. And so as he finished the letter, he writes with a lot more confrontation and a lot more concern. You have to assume that something like that happened. If you've been with us on Sunday morning in recent weeks, and you're now with us tonight as we turn to 2 Corinthians 11, you have to understand that change in tone and aim. It will feel startlingly different than what you've been feeling and seeing in previous chapters of 2 Corinthians. In fact, this chapter contains not only strong rebuke and warning, but Paul delivers it with biting sarcasm, and irony. 2 Corinthians 11 is Paul at his most sarcastic. Paul's sarcasm and irony in this chapter would be hilarious if the problem he was addressing wasn't so deadly. The sarcasm and irony would be off-putting or annoying or snide if it were not so loving. We'll see that. Verse 1 is sort of the heading to the whole chapter, introducing us to a theme that Paul will just keep coming back to in this chapter, foolishness. He says in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. That's actually the first bit in a whole lot of sarcasm to come. He begins, though, with fatherly concern. That's where we start. 
First, Paul's fatherly concern for the Corinthians in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul uses a marriage wedding metaphor here. He's imagining himself as the father of the bride. The bride is the church, the Corinthian church. Of course, the groom is Christ. They're now betrothed, engaged to Christ in this time between their conversion and then Paul's, uh, rather, Jesus' return. In between that time, there's a betrothal, there's an engagement period, and one day they'll be presented to Christ, hopefully as a pure virgin, showing their commitment, showing their, their purity, their commitment to Christ, their perseverance with him. But then verse 3, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That must be something he learned from a bad report about the Corinthian church. He has new news since he's written chapters 1 through 9. Apparently, they were being led astray. Apparently, they were starting to leave that sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He goes back to the garden to describe what's happening to them. Satan is in their midst, as it were. Look down at verse 14. He talks about false teachers and says, Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Verse 15, So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So Paul saw false teachers there in Corinth wreaking havoc once again and leading the Corinthians astray once again. Back to verse 4 of chapter 11. He says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Again, that has to be something of new news that that we, the readers, didn't know about before this chapter began, and now we're being introduced to it. It's probably new news for Paul as he writes this. They're being led astray from the real Jesus, from the true spirit, from the real gospel to another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. And they were putting up with it readily enough. They weren't putting up a fight. But secondly, let's talk about Paul's foolish contrast with super apostles. He begins with a fatherly concern, but then he moves to this foolish contrast with super apostles. Foolish is his word, remember? That's what he said. Put up up with a little foolishness, would you? He's going to contrast his ministry and his thinking with the ministry and thinking of these guys, these false teachers that he calls super apostles. He'll contrast his ministry with theirs three different ways. First, he boasts in what they think is foolish. In verses 5 to 15, he boasts in what they think is foolish. You see in verse 6 where he's talking about speaking. That Paul's speaking, it might be unskilled, but it's plain and true. He says in verse 6, even if I am unskilled in speaking, 
I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Perhaps the super apostles had been telling the Corinthian church that Paul, he's clumsy. He's not sophisticated. There's no rhetorical method there. It's, it's, it's not good speech like us good Greek Romans do. Paul says, yeah, I might not be skilled in speaking, but I have knowledge. What I say is true, and we've made this very plain to you in all things. Paul's emphasis is not on skill, but on plain, clear truth. He also talks about his charge for preaching. What does Paul charge for preaching? Well, he doesn't, unlike the super apostles. You see verse 7? Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia, churches of Philippi and Thessalonica, they supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now here Paul isn't condemning what he elsewhere approves, namely receiving financial ministry support. He believes in that. He teaches churches to do that. And even here, he talks about, in verse 8, accepting support from other churches in order to not burden the Corinthians. Sometimes in Paul's writing, we see him receiving support from a church. Sometimes we see him rejecting support from a church. Sometimes we see him supporting himself. None was his universal conviction. It was all based on the situation. It was situationally determined what he would do and how he would approach money and, and support. Perhaps the super apostles had something to do with his choice to not burden the Corinthians. You see, he's likely assuming a contrast in verse 7 when he says, Because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. In other words, the super apostles surely didn't. You, you know that old saying, you get what you pay for? The super apostles probably knew that saying too. They probably used that as a, an argument against Paul. You know, he's free. <laughs> you get what you pay for. I mean, do you want the pros? You got to pay for the pros, right? Yeah, we're, we get, we get $10,000 a visit. But, I mean, that's the going rate. That's, that just shows you how much we're in need and how much God is using us. And they used it as a means of commendation. Most likely. Paul said of these teachers in the previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 12, they measure themselves by one another and they compare themselves with one another. So looking around the field of apostles out there, the missionaries around, and they're saying, that guy, nah, look, look at us. That guy, he's not powerful. That guy, he's not eloquent. That guy, he doesn't charge. And he doesn't charge as much as we do. In verse 10, Paul says, As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced. So he's turning to boasting here. That's something Paul usually does. But here he says, This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Verse 11, 
because I do not love you? God knows I do. This is all proof of his love, his lack of charging them to preach the gospel is proof of his love and his care for them. His simple, plain speaking of truth to them was proof of his love for them. And in verse 12 and following, he wants to show how wrong, how bad, how dangerous these other teachers are. He says in verse 12, what I am doing here in this little bit right now here, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So at times they were contrasting themselves and their ministries with Paul's, and at times they were comparing it and relating it and saying, we do the same thing basically. Paul's saying, no you don't. And he is purposely trying to undermine what they've said and what they've claimed. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He uses a word here, it's mask wearing. They're masquerading. These guys are fake. They're phonies. They show up with masks on, pretending to be something else. No wonder, verse 14, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He warns them of this and talks in this language, begin, because he loves them. God knows we love you. But then he foolishly boasts in his strength. He first boasts in what they think is foolish, and he flatly owns what they think is foolish is, is what he actually does. But then secondly, he foolishly boasts in his own strength, verses 16 to 23. Look at verse 16. He says here, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. You got to understand what Paul's doing here. He is hijacking the language of these super apostles. They were all about what is foolish and what they boasted in. So they boasted in what they did and called everything else foolish. And they were using the word foolish in classical Greek terms, a fool, a dumb person, a silly thing. Paul, though, takes it and twists it a little bit. I think Paul is using foolish here in the proverbial sense. Remember the, the fool in Proverbs is him who doesn't fear the Lord. He doesn't go the Lord's ways. He is haughty. He's all these things. Paul's thinking of a fool that way. And he's saying, let me play the fool for you for just a bit here. Let me play the, let me act like what a fool really is for just a moment. So you can see. Verses 19 to 21 just drip with sarcasm. For you gladly bear with fools. You put up with fools being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. 
Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying the Corinthian church has a bit of a battered wife syndrome. With these super apostles, they have a bit of a battered wife syndrome. You put up with these guys beating you, as it were. You put up with these guys sneaking around on you, as it were. You put up with that, but you won't put up with me. Well, I'm sorry. We were just too weak to beat you up. You get the sarcasm? It's hard to miss, isn't it? Then the second half of verse 21, he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, again, I'm speaking as a fool, a Proverbs fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. I just love this. He's conflicted, isn't he? He doesn't like this. It's uncomfortable skin for him. But he's not in sin. He's playing this in a rhetorical fashion for, well, again, because he loves them. Because he's concerned for them. He's saying, if we really did want to sort of boast, I could boast. I can say everything they say. So here he's foolishly, you could say, boasting of his strength. But then he foolishly boasts in his suffering. He foolishly boasts in his suffering, verses 23 and following. Notice this, just verses 23 to 27, that's just five verses, lists 22 points of suffering. Some call this Paul's suffering resume or his catalog of suffering. 22 categories of suffering in just five verses. That's unusual in the Bible. And by the way, most of these are in the plural, like five times or three times or just plural. There's an S on the end. Let's read the whole section. Verses 23 to 27. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one, 39 lashes on the back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from river, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." It's easy to read this section by itself or to even just think of this section by itself and miss the, the way it was couched right before this. Remember, Paul is hesitant. He thinks this, this is madman talk here to boast like this. You, you don't want a missionary coming home from the field and giving you this sort of list uh, unless there's a real purpose 
for that kind of list, unless it's a prayer request or something like that. You wouldn't want them to, to make it their boast of how hard it is and what they've put up with and pat themselves on the back for it. This is foolish boasting. This is what the Proverbs fool would do if he was an apostle or on the mission field. He would build a suffering resume. He would catalog his pains. What Paul's doing here is something that was really common in first century Roman times. Augustus Caesar wrote his eulogy before he died. All the great things he did. And Paul is doing something very similar here. He might even be borrowing from some of Caesar's own language. But, but of course, it's all upside down. Here, Paul's boasting not in his accomplishments, but in his suffering. And now lastly, third main section here. We talked about how Paul has fatherly concern for the Corinthians and how then Paul foolishly contrasts his ministry with the super apostles. Now Paul comes full circle with care and concern in verses 28 and 29. He comes full circle. Verses 28 and 29, look down in your Bibles at those. Those are still part of that catalog of suffering. And so they're attached to the verses that we just read, that big long list of 22 points of suffering. In fact, many have noticed that the, the last two verses there, verses 28 and 29, are really the climax of his suffering resume. Here's the climax. Verse 28. And apart from other things, meaning this is an incomplete list that just preceded it, Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? It says something remarkable about the nature of a shepherding ministry in general or an apostolic ministry specifically that Paul sees the internal, emotional, spiritual pains as chief compared to the physical pains and the external pains. That's what I mean by those verses 28 and 29 are the climax of the list, not a by the way at the end or a footnote. But rather than just think of verse 28 and 29 in that list that long list of, of pains, even if they are the most painful, we really need to see that verses 28 and 29 are the culmination of Paul's broader argument as he circles back to his fatherly concern. That's where we started. Let me read verses 28 and 29 again and see if this sounds familiar to things that are earlier in the chapter. Apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I am not indignant? This is where Paul began. Here he now proves his point that he was making all along. He proves his fatherly concern. Remember he talked about that in verse 2. I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. People come along and proclaim another Jesus, a different gospel, another different spirit, and you put up with it. Who is led astray? And I am not indignant. Do you see? This is where he goes toward the end of the book. In chapter 13, he raises the concern. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So Paul was indignant at these false teachers leading his people, this bride of Christ, astray. He wondered whether they would persevere, whether they would truly believe in the end. He didn't know. He said, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. But really the whole point of chapter 11 is Paul's integrity and Paul's faithfulness in ministry and hence the proof of his apostolic ministry. It really asks us the question for today, what are the marks of a faithful ministry? Would you just look down in your Bibles as I refer to verses again without reading them? What are the marks of a faithful ministry? Well, according to verse 2, it's fatherly love and holy jealousy, a desire for the church's purity and its perseverance. According to verses 3 and 4, a mark of a faithful ministry is a willingness to warn, not just encourage, but to warn. According to verse 6, a mark of a faithful ministry is that there is plain and clear preaching of the truth. It's plain and clear, and it's not emphasizing its extravagance or sophistication. According to verse 7 and 8, well, there's no high-priced gospel in a faithful ministry. There's no commendation of self in a faithful ministry. There's no commendation of self based on finances or numbers or high demand. According to verse 12, there is no boasted mission. No boasted mission. According to verse 13, it means not disguising things. It means there's no deceit. There is no masquerading. There is no mask wearing in a faithful ministry. Verses 16 to 22. Remember that section there? There we learn and draw a conclusion for today that faithful ministry and faithful ministers do not boast in strength or in their self-confidence. They don't compare themselves to others. They don't rate themselves against others. Now, Paul did that kind of thing in these verses for just a few sentences. He did it very reluctantly and he only did it with a mocking, sarcastic rhetoric to show how stupid it is. He puts on the hat of the super apostles and prances around to show them how stupid it looks. And I don't recommend you do this at home. 
right? I mean, Paul is an apostle writing under the inspiration of Scripture here, and Paul acting like a madman with sarcasm and irony for a, a paragraph or so, well, he's a little bit safer doing that than you or I are. But back to the point. Faithful ministers do not boast in their strength or in self-confidence. That's exactly what Paul was mocking. According to verses 23 to 27 there, that resume of suffering, the catalog of suffering, that teaches us today that there is a willingness to suffer and sacrifice among faithful ministers and faithful ministries. Not all servants are called to the same degree or kind of suffering. It would be almost impossible to try to get this kind of suffering resume under your belt. No one calls us to that. Not the Lord, no one else. But, but there is something that we can relate to here. There is some willingness that needs to be there in the heart and life of those who shepherd the church and sacrifice themselves for the sheep a willingness to not count their lives as dear to themselves. It means sacrifice. And then verses 28 and 29, what do those teach us about faithful ministry? Well, they tell, they tell, they tell us that there is a massively weighty concern and care for the church among its shepherds, one that is almost omnipresent, omnipresent and almost unbearable. Anxiety for all the churches. Thankfully, no eldership bears the weight of all the churches. That's apostolic. But elders bear the responsibility of a church. And there is a weight there. There is an anxiety there. This isn't in conflict with what Jesus says about not being anxious. It's not in conflict with what Paul says in Philippians 4 about not being anxious. This is a different kind of anxiety or care or concern or worry. It's one that still trusts the Lord, but it doesn't necessarily mean you don't get an ulcer. When Christians stumble, when brothers and sisters are deceived, that's Paul's word, then their servant leaders are broken, if not indignant. Inflamed. Care for their souls is almost symbiotic. The church's pain is their pain. May God help the shepherds of Desert Springs Church to pursue a faithful ministry like this as long as God gives us breath. And what about the sheep? How do other Christians, not leaders or pastors, how do other Christians apply this chapter today? Well, we may not have the same direction of waywardness that the Corinthian church was demonstrating at this time, thankfully. We may not be currently led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ like they were. But Paul's warning to the Corinthians here is a warning to us all. And it should be startling to us that most likely this was a, a repeat offense, a repeat backsliding, and it was a quick one. If it's true that, that Paul penned chapters 1 through 9 and set it aside for some time, then got a bad report, it means it didn't happen uh, too slowly, but very quickly that they went from Paul's praise 
the last report being good, to now Paul's rebuke, the next report being very sad and scary. Would you just hear these words like a father, spiritual father, is saying them to you? I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In other words, do not be led astray by Satan. Do not be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Instead, be presented to Christ on that day as a pure virgin to one husband because of his, the Lord's divine jealousy for you. I am a jealous God, he says. I will be jealous over you. It's all over the Bible, all over the Old Testament especially. The Lord's Supper helps us remember this, doesn't it? Listen to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, where there Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Remember, the Lord is a jealous God. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a, a participation in the blood of Christ? In the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And Paul ends this chapter with these familiar words that are related to this context. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God.